This is Radio Influence. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. I'm your host, Vincent Hill. Today is Tuesday, July the 10th. 2018 and we got a lot of ground to cover today i want to talk more on what we talked about last week on uh, departments experiencing an influx of officers leaving the department in droves there's a new department that has made the list this week i want to talk about that there's actually two but one says it's more about pay which i can kind of believe considering where that city is but the other one is more on the lines of they're fed up with the politics of policing. They're fed up with not being able to do their jobs effectively. So I want to talk about that. Then I want to talk about the NFL. There's been some news uh, coming out of the NFL within the last 24 hours that I want to discuss. And I want to talk about kneeling as it relates to the NFL. And we all know the NFL lost ratings last year because of that whole kneeling situation and the injustices as the the black players said that occur in the black community so i want to talk about that um but before we get into that just a quick recap uh earlier today i was in court here in georgia and uh decatur georgia which is just outside of atlanta there's a trial right now georgia versus leon williams which we're covering on the law and crime network which i host thursdays and fridays thursdays Three to five, Fridays, 12 to three. Uh, but he's accused, he's on trial right now for the murder of his adopted son. He adopted uh, a little uh, boy uh, back in 2016. That little boy had special needs, autism, ADD, uh, a bunch of stuff that he had. Uh, he was having a bad day in school. So the father, the adopted father, uh, put him in a bathtub He decided the water wasn't hot enough that the little boy had ran, so he turned the hot water on. He turned it on so much that he got second-degree burns on his feet that were right by the faucet. Uh, He held them underwater several times for about 30 to 45 seconds, uh, and he actually beat the boy while this was going on. Now, his defense has said it was just an accident because he's a stern parent. He didn't mean to kill the child, but of course... The state, the prosecution, is charging him with malice murder, felony murder, three counts of child endangerment, and terroristic threats because one witness will testify and has told police that he actually heard the defendant, Leon Williams, tell the little boy, you're going to die tonight. So uh, I was in the courtroom today covering that. I I listened to the opening statements from the prosecution, from the defense. I kind of got a little sick because the defense, when he was up, he was talking to the very first caseworker that the little boy had, and he said, well, isn't it true that during some visits he would become violent, he would kick, he would knock stuff over, he would punch the walls, he would try to kick people. So he was trying to make it look like, yeah, I can understand why why the dad snapped because he opened his opening statement with, Uh, Just because Leon Williams made a bad mistake, and yes, he did admit to being responsible 
for the death of his son. He is not a murderer. I don't know what you call that if you intentionally hold someone underwater uh, for several minutes, multiple times. I don't know how you can say you're not a murderer, because to me, that's what it is. But anyway, so uh, after uh, the morning break, I went outside. I reported for the Law and Crime Network uh, live from the courthouse, which was pretty cool. The only thing that wasn't cool was the weather. It was about 80, 98 degrees here in Atlanta today, so I was outside in the heat reporting, but this is what I love to do. And I'll be back in New York this Thursday, this Friday. Friday, I will be covering this trial because I think Thursday this trial is not in session because the judge said he had a conflict of interest and he couldn't be there this Thursday. Uh, but we'll be talking about it Friday on the Law and Crime Network. And of course, we'll be talking about it uh, tomorrow on Wednesday, Law and Crime. Go to lawandcrime.com. You can watch the live feed of the trial and just take a listen and, and listen to this sad story about this 10-year-old autistic child that was killed by someone that was placed over him to be his protector. Now, speaking of the Law and Crime Network, I'm excited. Uh, I pitched an idea to them about doing a cold case segment. They actually loved it. So Thursday, when I go off the air this Thursday, I'll be taping my first cold case segment. We're going to edit it. We're going to put it out. I'm really excited about it. I already have one lined up for next week as well. But the one this week will actually be a 1991 murder that happened in Raleigh, North Carolina. The murder of Jaquetta Thomas. Now, back in 91, someone was arrested and he was convicted in 93. His name was Greg Taylor. But in 2010, he was fully exonerated, of course, with new DNA evidence, with witnesses recanting their statements and a bunch of other stuff. And more importantly, the actual support of Jaquetta Thomas's family, more importantly, her sister, who just kind of knew that the guy that was arrested and convicted, Greg Taylor, uh, had not killed her sister. So he was released in 2010. Again, this murder was in 1991. But based on the release of Greg Taylor, this case is still unsolved. It's a cold case. So we'll be featuring that on the Law and Crime Network in the days to come. Once I record it Thursday, I'm going to have her sister on. Once we edit it, we'll get it out there. I'll post it on my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram. I'll post it in all the social media so you can check that out. Now, let's switch gears. Let's talk about Seattle. And I've been to Seattle once or twice. I had to fly there to uh, take some Army prisoners to the Army prison there at Fort Lewis, Washington. So yeah, I've been to St. Louis, never really got out and saw the town because I was always there on business. And each time I was there, even if I had downtime, it was raining because, you know, it rains there in Seattle quite a bit. But the Seattle Police Department, they're having conflicting accounts. So some officials... And that in that department disputed claims by the police union vice president that officers are leaving in larger numbers because of unhappiness about city politics. Now, that vice president uh, is Sergeant Rich O'Neill, and he made a statement to the local media. And I quote, I've never seen the number of officers who are leaving and the way they are leaving. Less officers on the street 
means less safe for the citizens. Hmm? Makes sense to me. It's just depressing to serve in a place where my city council members who are coming out at times with negative comments about police. His city council members are coming out at times with negative comments about police. So this year they've lost 41 officers. Now, if my math is right, we're only in July. We still got about five months left in the year. 21 of those officers who left retired. Some of those were at the retirement age, but didn't necessarily need to retire. They could have continued on with their careers. And then the other 20 officers left the department because of this unhappiness and because their city officials don't have their backs. And I want to point out something he said here in his statement to the media. Less officers on the street, less safe for the citizens. And I I couldn't agree more. And I will equate it to something that the Democrats are trying to do away with right now. They're trying to do away with ICE because, you know, we've seen it on news. Families are being separated. It's supposedly racial, even though these are some of the same statements that Obama and Clinton made about illegal, keyword illegal immigration. But, you know, Democrats want to do away with ICE and they think that's going to solve everything. But in actuality, what it will do, because ICE border patrol, patrol being the operative word here, patrol, they're patrolling the borders to prevent illegal activity from entering in the United States. So let's not get it twisted and let's not think that when these border patrols are out doing their jobs, they're only out there grabbing little kids that are walking in the desert in the middle of the night, across rivers, across creeks, hiding out in trees. What they're actually doing, that's part of it. Again, if you're entering this country illegally, that's part of what they're doing. But they're also stopping people like they stopped this lady trying to enter the United States the other day in her vehicle with her two-year-old in the car, but drug dogs actually got a hit on the car, and once they pulled down the back seat, they discovered 20 kilos of heroin that she was attempting to get into the state of Texas. So, do away with police on the streets, your crime rate goes up. Do away with ICE on the borders, your drug rate goes up. And then, not only will crime increase in these little cities where they're having these issues with keeping police happy, crime will increase everywhere because with the drug trade, and I doubt that heroin and cocaine, unlike marijuana, will ever be legal. I I doubt that those class four substances, those class four narcotics, will ever be legal in this country. So, yeah, it's easy to say, oh, let's do this because it will solve for this and families won't get separated and we'll just be one big happy country. Well, in reality, we won't because our crime rate will start to skyrocket. And let's take this a little further. You don't think people like, let's say... I don't know, drug cartels in Mexico aren't watching the news in the U.S. And if I'm Pablo Escobar, I know he's dead. 
just using him as an example. If I'm Pablo Escobar and I read or I watch somewhere that, wait, Seattle police are leaving in droves because they're tired of their city officials not having their backs and they have less less officers, where do you think I'm going to try to push my product to? Or, like we talked about last week in Indianapolis, Indiana, if I'm Pablo Escobar and I watch on the news or read about it on Google or whatever that, oh, Indianapolis lost almost 100 officers this year alone, where do you think I'm going to tell my mule to push my product to? So this is much bigger, a much bigger scale than just local departments having these issues of keeping police officers when you add into account that the Democrats are trying to eliminate ICE, eliminate Border Patrol, so we can just let anybody in this country. That's not what this country is supposed to do. Yes, do we accept any and all? Absolutely. If they're vetted, if they're here legally, again, not anything Obama didn't say, not anything Clinton didn't say. Prime example, I actually have a birth certificate that has the word Germany in it because I was born in Germany while my dad was stationed there. But I assure you, I cannot go to Germany and say, hey, I'm coming into your country. You're not going to check who I am. You're not going to check if I'm a terrorist group. You're not going to check if I got 20 kilos of cocaine. You're not going to check if I'm associated with Pablo Escobar. You're going to let me into your country. No questions asked. I'm going to stay here. And then you're going to make sure I'm taken care of while I stay here. Doesn't work that way. There's no other country in this world right now where you can just say, you know what? I'm coming in here. You don't need to know who I am. You don't need to know why I'm coming in here. I'm just coming in here and I'm going to come in here in the middle of the night. I'm going to walk down the desert, through a creek, down a tunnel to make sure I get in the country. But I don't want you to stop me once I'm in that creek or in that tunnel because you're supposed to just let me in. And I'm going to bring my crime also. But I know since I am bringing my crime and your police are leaving in droves, I now can build my enterprise right here in the city of Seattle or right here in the city of Indianapolis, Indiana, because your officers are leaving in droves. Now, we've talked about Seattle. We've talked about Indianapolis, but there's another city, another city where the crime rate is fairly high, where police officers are leaving. But they say they're leaving for a different reason. And that would be the city of Detroit. Now, the officers there, and I kind of believe it, say that they're leaving because of pay. So they're going to other agencies throughout the state of Michigan or other states because Michigan has been on a salary, the same salary, Michigan or Detroit police, I should say, have been on the same salary since 2004, not 2014. 2004 because if you remember and you know about Detroit you know it's not known for its economic status so when the city went bankrupt there was a 
freeze on all raises, all of this stuff, all the new equipment. But the city has never caught up from that. So police officers are like, well, why am I doing this job in this city for peanuts when I can go do it somewhere else and get more money and maybe even less crime? And let's not forget there's gangs in Detroit. Let's not forget police are shot and killed in Detroit. Even black police officers are shot and killed in Detroit. Let's throw that out there. Uh, So you got police in Detroit leaving. Guess what that does to the gang members in the city of Detroit? Oh, you guys are leaving? I'm just going to open my enterprise. And then I'm going to get a connection from the MS-13 who snuck into... Well, correction, if the Democrats get away with eliminating ICE, I'm going to get my connection from an MS-13 member who's bringing in kilos upon kilos upon kilos of cocaine or heroin into this country through the borders of Mexico. I'm going to take the 10, 12, 14-hour drive down to Texas. I'm going to load up, and booyah, I'm going to bring it to the city of Detroit that already has a high crime rate, but it's losing officers in droves. See, when I'm thinking about stuff, I like to think big picture. Big picture. Again, start small. Indianapolis, Indiana. Seattle, Washington. Detroit, Michigan. What do you think will start happening in a city like Chicago if they start losing officers in droves? Now, keep in mind, there's already eight hundred or so people a year dying in Chicago by gunfire. Their chief has said they usually recover two to three illegal guns per day in the city of Chicago. That's a lot of guns if you do the math. Even at two times 365, you do the math. It's a lot of guns, but that's not even a point of a percent of the amount of guns that they miss every day. So, Seattle, Indianapolis, Detroit, then let's say Chicago, and then let's say, I don't know, New York City, where crime, eh, for the most part, it's contained, it's controlled. Do they have crime? Yes. But is it where it was back in 1979, 1980? No. But let's just say police in the city of New York start leaving because, let's be honest, There's some things going on in New York where people are pointing the finger at police saying they do this and they only do this to these people and they only talk to these people on the streets and they only stop these people on the streets from smoking marijuana. So you don't think New York police are getting tired of hearing that and not having support from their chain of command? So let's just say New York City, where they have thousands of officers let's just say 500 of them leave just because they're tired of the politics and the bs and being painted the bad guy what do you think is going to happen to that city do you think people will just be rushing to get to new york because it's the one of the tourist capitals of the world once that crime rate goes back up to where it was in 1979 1980 nope and again you don't think pablo escobar will sit there and funnel his drugs up to New York City because police have left 
which means smaller departments, which means slower response time, which means you have no time to be proactive, which means you can only be a reactive police officer, which means you'll be reacting to all the robberies, to all the burglaries, to all the car thefts, and you won't have time to be proactive in policing and getting guns and drugs and felons off the street. So, what may start out small, kind of like, I never had chicken pox, but I've seen people with chicken pox, kind of like chicken pox, right? You get this one bump here, then it starts to itch, then you get another and another and another and another, and it just spreads all over your body until you're just totally infected. I'm telling you, when I said last week that I hope this doesn't become an epidemic of officers leaving their departments because they're tired of the BS, they're tired of the politics, they're tired of being labeled a racist, they're tired of be, being labeled uh, abusive thugs. I, I watched a video uh, just a couple of hours ago where it was in El Paso, two Hispanic cops were arresting a Hispanic juvenile. All the other juveniles, and some of them looked like they were 10, 11 years old. F the police! F the police! Now, these were Hispanic kids, but I love the way how they kept using the N-word, mind you. Oh, and take that badge and gun off. I bet I'll whoop your ass. I bet I'll whoop your ass. Blah, blah, blah. And it was sad that one of the kids' moms was there saying, if you didn't have that gun and that badge, I guarantee they'd pull a gun on you. Hmm. You see the stuff that police are dealing with now? What would stop those two El Paso officers from saying, you know what? Screw this. I'm done with this. I'm done with little 10-year-old knuckleheads calling me this, calling me that, calling me out of my name. F this. I'm tired of parents saying, if you didn't have that uniform on, I'd have my kid pull a gun on you. I'm tired of this. I'm leaving. You see where we're going? Do you see where this country's going? And if we don't fix it, if we don't fix it, we're in trouble. It's not about race. It's not about being racist. But the person in office right now believes in law and order in this country. I believe in law and order in this country. Not because I want to target a specific group, a specific race. I believe in law and order in this country. So I can go down the street and not have to worry about getting robbed. So I can go down the street and not have to worry about someone approaching me to sell drugs. So my son can go to school and not have to worry about being shot or someone selling him drug drugs. That's why I believe in law and order and it has nothing to do with race. But since the mainstream media has put that bug in people's ears, has brainwashed people to only believe what they show, that it only happens here, that's why we're in the predicament we are in. That's why you see NFL players kneeling on the field because of this so-called racial disparity and the injustices by white police officers in this country. So, speaking of NFL, I said at the top of the show, I wanted to talk about the NFL. I wanted to talk about the kneeling. 
So let's talk about it. You know, it's been going on for quite a while now. It's still one of the main topics in the news. You know, the season's off-season right now, but football will pick up soon. And I'm sure once it does, we will still be talking about these uh, players, mostly black players, kneeling because of the black, the injustices in the black community by police. Well, just yesterday in Pittsburgh, former Detroit Lions tight end Brandon Pettigraw, maybe I'm not a Detroit Lion fan because I have no idea who he is. Anyway, he was fighting, fighting with police, not because, you know, they just showed up and said, hey, black guy, come here, turn around, put your hands behind your back, we're taking you to jail. Well, it started out because he refused to pay, get this, now, you know, I don't know if he's first, second, third string, I'm thinking he's got a little money in his pocket because he plays for the NFL. He refused to pay a $97 limousine fare. So he gets into it with the limo driver, who then was in fear of his life. So he runs into the hotel, gets on the phone, calls police. Hey, police, there's this guy who was in my limo who refused to pay the $97 fare. I assure you the call didn't go like this. Hey, police, there's this black guy here, and I just want you to show up and take him to jail because that's what you guys do. So guess what? Police arrive, and they tell this individual, the limo driver, well, if he refused to pay, you have to recoup the $97 fare through court, which is true, you know, Go to court, get the $97. Police were not there, again, just to show up and harass this black guy. They got a call. They actually tried to handle the call peacefully, saying, hey, this is not really a criminal issue. Take him to court. It's civil. Booyah. So they get done with the limo driver. They approach, make contact with Brandon, because that's what police have to do. They can't only just talk to one person there. They have to talk to all parties involved. So as they approach, they notice he was intoxicated, barely standing. So he refused to identify himself, and he declared he knew what his constitutional rights were. So then he began to argue very aggressively. He kept moving closer to the officers in a defensive stand. Then, get this. Get this, he punched one of the police officers three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. So what officers do? Oh, they shot him, right? Because that's what they do to black people. No, they actually drew their tasers, told him to step back. They were able to place him in handcuffs, I assume, even though he was intoxicated and even though he knew his constitutional rights, He didn't want to feel that electricity running through his body. So at that point, he complied with commands. Now, if there wasn't some type of body cam, which I'm sure there was, or something like that, I think this story would be spun a different way that police showed up and immediately harassed this guy, and they were wrong for doing it, and we need to protest. But since Brandon was in the wrong here, we haven't heard one peep 
about this. It didn't make CNN. I already checked. It made the local paper there in Pittsburgh, but it didn't make the mainstream media um, that we would expect if the police officer was accused of using excessive force against this not only NFL player, but this black NFL player. So I wonder, and right now Brandon is a free agent. I don't know if he's going to get picked up. I don't know. But I wonder if the next time he's on the field, will he take a knee for this injustice that everyone is saying is going on? But all the while, you punched, struck a law enforcement official. Now let's just say that law enforcement official, those two officers there, did use their tasers. And then there was cell phone video. I guarantee, A, two things. A, we only would have seen the part where he got tased. Whether they recorded it or not, whoever caught it on cell phone video would only show the part where he got tased. Not the lead up, not the build up, just the climax of when he got tased. And then the other part of that is all the NFL players right now would be hashtagging about kneeling and this and that because it would have fit the narrative that everybody's been brainwashed to accept. But since Brandon was in the wrong, not a peep from anybody, not a peep. And just to confirm, I, I just checked checked again on my, my trusty iPad. When, when I searched his name, I Google searched his name, 13 ABC, Washington Post, DTAE Pittsburgh, USA Today, Detroit News, AOL.com, USA Today, I think I said that, Detroit Free Press, and Click Out Detroit, whatever that is. Those outlets are telling this story, probably because it's local. I understand the Detroit piece because, yeah, he played for the Detroit Lions. I understand the the uh, Pittsburgh piece those news outlets because it happened in Pittsburgh but no CNN no mainstream media because it doesn't fit the narrative but what fits their narrative things like eliminating ice and making police officers look bad those are the things that are going to drive crime at all time record highs all-time record highs because just like I said there was this large demographic of voters who were silently waiting for the election when they voted for President Trump there's a large demographic of people not voters they could care less but people that are in the criminal world who are waiting for things like ice to go out the window so they can move their drugs into this country oh yeah it's true Mark my words, if it happens, you'll see these crime rates skyrocket in every major city you can think of. All because right now, that's the narrative being told because it sells, people watch it, but none of these people telling these stories, these narratives, are even thinking about the effect it will have on this country. 
All right, we are out of time for this evening. I want to thank you again, as always, for listening. But before I go, of course, I have to do my 10-7 segment. Tonight, I want to spotlight Trooper Nicholas Nicholas Clark uh, with the New York State uh, Police Department. His end of watch was Monday, July 2nd, 2018. Trooper Nicholas Clark was shot and killed when he and other officers responded to a suicidal subject at 141 Welch Road in Irwin, New York. He had responded to the residents along with the members of the Steuben County Sheriff's Office and Corning Police Department after the man's wife called 911 at approximately 3.30 a.m. and reported that he was suicidal and possibly armed. Crisis negotiators were attempting to make contact with the subject when he opened fire, fatally wounding Trooper Clark. The subject was found deceased a short time later, suffering from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Trooper Clark had served with the New York State Police for just under three years. He is survived by his parents and his brother. He was a former two-time high school state wrestling champion and had previously tried out for the Buffalo Bills football team. Now, I wonder if the Buffalo Bills will kneel for this trooper, Nicholas Clark. I doubt it because it doesn't fit their narrative. Again, I want to thank you for listening. I will see you right here, same time, same place, next week, RadioInfluence.com. And don't forget the Long Crime Network, Thursdays and Fridays, Thursdays 3 to 5, Fridays 12 to 3, LawandCrime.com. Thank you and good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. This is a dark to light with Frank and Beans quick fix on Radio Influence. Remember where Papadopoulos was before he came to the Trump campaign? Do you remember? The State Department. He was working, you know, he he has some connections there and, and Clinton, etc. But he was on Ben Carson's campaign. Ben Carson was another outsider. Actually, I, I, I'm pretty sure that in all of the emails that we were reading from the DNC leaks, when we stumbled upon the the Pied Piper strategy of trying to elevate Donald Trump because they thought that he would be the easiest to beat and the the more susceptible to be taken down by their media tricks. I believe that the first phase of the Pied Piper strategy was to first get rid of Ben Carson. Aha. So they 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 went up the ladder. So I guess I guess all of their their tricks work with Ben Carson. And then when it came to Donald Trump, who was supposed to be uh, persona non grata, number one, the number one guy that they wanted to get up there. It just didn't work. They fell flat in their face. Dark to Light with Frank and Beans can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.